In your Bibles, if you have them, can you turn to the book of 1 John, as Mike was sharing before? Uh, we are in the, a letter in the New Testament, probably written by John, and this is part seven, and I'm going to uh, attach this morning two passages together. The passages are chapter two. Uh, ooh, interesting. I have left the first page. Oh, here it is. Chapter two uh, and verses 18 to 28, and chapter four and verses one to six. So if you were with us about three weeks ago, I missed out a passage, and we're coming back to it today and attaching it to another passage. And as John, as in John Ford, I was saying last week, what the Apostle John loves to do is to kind of return to themes in his letter. Have you noticed that? He kind of comes back to the same theme, looks at it in a different way, and that's why I'm putting these two passages together this morning. So let's start together in chapter 2 and verse 18. And I want you to look out for the comparison that John makes. Often in his letter, he makes these stark contrasts, light and dark, remember that? And love and hate to make his points. Look out for the contrast that he's making in these two passages. Here we go. Children, he says, because he's a loving father, John, writing in his old age to this church in 90 AD. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. I'll explain that word later on. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Chapter four, verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen. So you're probably noticing one of the contrasts that John is making is between what you might call truth and lies. Did you pick that out? So six times in those two passages, John refers to true truth or knowledge. And seven times, he refers to lie or liar or deceive or false or error. He's making this stark contrast between what's true and what's not. 
And John's making a big claim about what is true. And I guess when it comes to truth, we've probably never lived in a culture that is more concerned about it, asking about it, wondering about it, making claims to know what it is. Truth is a big deal, isn't it? In, especially in the, in the modern West in the 21st century. And so what John says to Ephesus in 90 AD about truth is particularly relevant to us in Kingston and in London in 2019. And the claim that John wants to make, the statement he wants to make is effectively this. Truth is something that can be known. It is uniquely contained in Jesus Christ. And when actively applied, it leads to a secure life. That's the big, that's the big message of this morning. That truth is something that can be known. It's uniquely contained in Jesus Christ. And when it's actively applied, it leads to security, to secure living. I want to unpack that statement. That's the big idea for this morning. Let me unpack it with four questions. One, can truth be known? Two, do you believe the truth? Three, do you test for the truth? And four, do you live in the truth? Can the truth be known? Do you believe it? Do you test for it? Do you live in it? Number one, can the truth be known? Now, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a kind of expert social commentator. um, So just bear with me. But I, I think there are two... It strikes me there are two ways at the moment, or of late, and by of late I mean in the last few years and in the last few centuries, two ways that people are looking at truth more and more, or wanting, or defining what truth is. One way that truth gets defined more and more is that truth is what can be empirically proven. So people say that what is true is that which can be empirically proven, or in other words, proved in a science lab. If it can be proved in a science laboratory, then that's true. If it can't happen, then it it exists in another realm which we might call faith or superstition or speculation. That's one way of looking at truth. I think you might hear more at the moment. But of course, I guess there's a slight problem with that. For example, I know that my wife loves me, but I I can't prove that to you in a laboratory. I've got evidence for it. Not least she gave me a line yesterday morning. I can give you evidence, but I can't prove that she loves me, but I know it to be true. So I think we know that that definition of truth doesn't get this as far as we need to get. Then, and perhaps more recently in history, and perhaps particularly in the newer generation, another way of looking at truth is that truth is what I sincerely feel it to be. That if I sincerely feel something to be the case, or I feel myself to be the case, or I express it particularly vehemently or confidently, that is what is true, and it's, it's true for me. And so we might hear language that that, that's my truth, or that might be your truth, because I feel it to be the case. But again, I guess that would have some some challenges to it. So imagine a a mother takes her little six-year-old for a a walk along the river one day, and they see some little red berries on a hedge on the side of the path. And the little girl says, Mommy, can I eat? I want to eat those red berries. They look so nice. And the mother knows that the red berries are, are basically poisonous. They're not good for you. Now, the little girl sincerely believes the berries to be deliciously Wonderful. That's, the, that's what she believes to be true. Does the mother let the little girl eat the berries based on the sincerity of her belief? Of course she doesn't. She has an objective standard of truth, and she knows that to exist within that truth is for her little girl's flourishing and health. So I'm not sure we can always say truth is only that which can be empirically proven. I'm not sure we can always say truth is that which I sincerely feel to be true. Christianity, I think, offers a, offers a third way It does touch into the evidence. Christianity is very clear. We need a reason for our faith. We need to have evidence for why we believe what I believe. It's not a non-thinking faith. Romans 1 tells us that creation, for example, gives us all kinds of indications to the reality that there is a designer behind the universe. 
And we could go into that now. That's, that's another whole other talk. The evidence that's at play. The fact that scientists in the 1960s caught up with the Bible and said, yes, the universe does have a beginning, having denied it for a long time. The evidence for the resurrection is profound. It doesn't empirically prove Jesus has risen from the dead, but there's profound evidence, reason, cognitive evidence to assent to the Christian faith. But secondly, the Christian faith is also to do with our emotions. We're mind, body, and soul. We're not just cognitively assenting to a creedal truth. We do feel it to be true. Authentic Christianity does mean that your emotions, your feelings are caught up. You experience the reality of the Christian faith. We're not just called to uh, an intellectual assent. We do expect to personally experience and have a new identity as a result of what Christianity says. But the difference is that Christianity is saying it's neither one nor the other. It's not only something that is evidential by uh, cognitive assent. Neither is it all down to how I feel. There's a third way, the truth. We know that we need, we know the truth is the truth because there's a truth giver. That's the key difference. We're not saying I can find out the truth through my cleverness and my experiments and my uh, cognitive skills. Neither are we saying I can know the truth simply from how I feel and what I experience it to be. We're saying actually there is a truth because there's a third party, if you like, that's given us truth. And what John wants to say, at least in part, is that the good news of the gospel is that we can know what is true. In a world that's constantly asking, what is true? What is fake? What is real? How can I know that whether I'm reading is true or not? John's saying, you can know what is true. And you can live securely as a result. Truth is something that can be known. is contained in Jesus Christ. And when actively applied, leads to a secure life. So question number two is, do you believe the truth? Do you believe the truth? Because that's partly what a Christian is. It's somebody who is building their life upon truth. Not because we're special or superior or we're clever enough to find it out. We know the truth because the truth giver has graciously made it known to us and enabled us to respond. That's what humbles us. One of the many reasons that humbles a Christian is that I'm only a Christian because God himself stepped into my life, unblinded my eyes, helped me to see truth and gave me the faith to believe it. There's no no room for superiority. And God's done that in different ways. He's given us clues in creation, Romans 1. Given us the Bible, the word of God, and most specifically, he's given us Jesus to show us what is true. And even in these two little passages, there are some answers to the big questions that humans have had for centuries about what is true, just in these two passages. Let me give you four kind of questions that I think many humans have asked over the centuries, and you'll see how John answers them with what is true just in these two passages. For example, many people have asked over the centuries, is there a God? Is there a God and what's he like? And in chapter four, in verse two, John writes, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John says, yes, there is a God. Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ has shown us what God is like by becoming flesh, by becoming human. Just this week I've been singing this old song in my kind of morning devotions. It's in the, the King's Church songbook, which is still knocking around, limited edition that you can get hold of at great price. And I've been singing this beautiful old song and the, the verse goes like this. Uh, Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, 
and washes our feet. That's what God is like. In Jesus Christ, we don't just see that there is a God because he was able to rise from death to life. We see what God is like. He's both the Lord of eternity and the one who dwells in humanity. He's both majestic and meek. He's both supreme and yet he kneels in humility. In Jesus we see not just who God is, but what he's like. Second question people have asked at times over the centuries is if there is a God, how can I know him? How can I know him? Not just know about him, how can I know him? Chapter 2, verse 23, John writes, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's a key central truth of the Christian life that Jesus is not just God. He doesn't just show us what God is like. He is the way to God. It's the kind of exclusive truth claim that our culture is increasingly uncomfortable with. John overheard, as a young disciple, he overheard many years before he wrote this letter. He tells us in his gospel, he overheard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. A couple of weeks, just this week, I bumped into an old friend of mine. His name is Rabaz. He's a, a Muslim guy. We used to live together. We used to have some good conversations, as you can imagine. And I bumped into him uh, in a barber shop in Kingston. Uh, you might wonder why I was in a barber shop. <laughs> he works in a barber shop, and I, I walked past. It's nice to go every now, every, every now and then. And we were just catching, uh, chatting and, and catching up. Uh, and he hadn't met my little girl before, and we were just catching up. It was really nice. And just in the middle of the conversation, he just said to me, do you still believe in God? I said, I believe in Jesus Christ. Because that was, that was always the, our conversations. It was like, yeah, we, we both believe in God. We both believe that we're going to be held to account one day. We both believe in the reality of a creator and a, and a, and a God who is supreme and sovereign. But there, there's a key difference. Is that I'm not working my way up to be God. I've got a God who's come down to me to bring him to himself. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that was where we always had our discussions. And they're good ones. Third big question that people have asked over the, over the centuries. Will good overcome evil in the end? Like how many stories and plays and novels and poems and pieces of music basically have at their heart good triumphing over evil, right? It's right at the heart of humanity. There's a, something deep in us that says, surely evil doesn't win in the end. The bad guy doesn't win in the end, surely. Why is that there? Well, John gives us an answer to that big question as well with what is true. At least he hints at it. Chapter 2, verse 18, he writes, Children, it is the last hour. Verse 28, he says, When he appears, referring to Jesus, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from, his, from him in shame at his coming. Meaning that one day Jesus will return. John's answering that question, at least indirectly. Will, will good really triumph over evil in the end? John says, yes, it will. Because the resurrected, ascended Jesus will one day return to put all things right. Revelation 21, Jesus says, when he comes back, he says, I will make all things new. I'll wipe away every tear. His promise is to defeat evil finally. The full culmination and climax of the resurrection is Jesus returns, makes all things new. The new creation is ushered in. Every tear is wiped away. No more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, no more injustice, no more loneliness. Only good at its intrinsic purity. That's why so many poets and playwrights and musicians and artists have basically expressed that question. Surely evil doesn't win in the end. And John's answer is it doesn't win in the end. Good does in the person of Jesus Christ. We're in the last hour, which means the time between his ascension and his return. 
He'll bring a final end, or no evil will go unpunished. None. The kind of a naturalist worldview doesn't have an answer to unpunished evil. It doesn't have an answer to the cries of millions of uh, oppressed and abused people. These cries of seeming to never to have been heard, have fallen in the dust of abuse and all kinds of things. There is an answer. His name is Jesus Christ. He will punish every act of evil one day. Why? Chapter 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's a victor. Fourth question that people have asked many, many times. Is there any hope when death comes? People have asked that over and over again. Is death really the end? Why does it feel so wrong? People express that over and over and over again. Even in a very naturalistic, secular culture like ours, when, when death comes, people are looking for, there must, it, it can't be. Maybe you've experienced that more, more recently. The in, indignation of death. What's the truth to that question? Chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What's the truth to that question? No, you're right. Death is not the end. Because the resurrection tells us that Jesus Christ punched a hole through death. Anyone that's united to him through faith is drawn through that hole into eternal life to enjoy the new creation forever and ever and ever. That intrinsic human indignation and reaction to the the suddenness of death is put there by God. And the answer to it is put there by God. And his name is Jesus Christ. Any single person who is united to Jesus through his life and death is pulled with him into eternal life, just as anybody who rejects him is pulled with him and then rejected by him into eternal death. It's a profound, true answer that is given. Death is not the end for any of us. It's either the new creation with its purity and wonder and the answer to every single human desire met in the perfection of the new creation, or it's the opposite and the hellishness and awfulness of a rejection of and then a rejection by Jesus. So if you're a Christian, do you, do you believe these truths? And not just do you believe them, like, because you're saying, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm in church because I believe Christianity. If you don't, A, you're welcome, and B, I'll come back to you in a second. If you're a Christian, do you believe, do they actually sift regularly from your head to your heart the reality of the gospel? That song that I mentioned to you, which I'm tempted to sing, but I definitely won't, goes on to say, oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Does it, does it bring you to worship? That's what I mean by belief. Are these truths that you hear and assent to and say, I, I, I believe it's, there's a cre- it's not just a creed. These, these are truths that the Holy Spirit brings alive in our hearts and bring us, brings us to worship. Is that your experience? And if it's not, I've got good news. The Holy Spirit was given by Jesus, quotes to lead us into all truth. Not so that we would simply stay kind of uh, observing some creedal true statements so that they would live in our hearts and that we would know joy and a worshipful response. That's on offer for you this morning, to freshly receive the Holy Spirit and not just observe truth, but experience it and be led to security and joy in the light of it. Does it lead, do these truths lead you to worship? Second question, do they lead you to obedient, courageous living? 
That is what happened. When people get hold of these truths from head to heart into soul, they cause radical, obedient, courageous living. John and Sophie found that these truths are not simply intellectual truths. They live in your heart and they cause you to respond with with courage. And so for them, it was like, I can't just keep on worshiping the reality of the truth of Jesus, the, the wonder of his claim, of what he's done, the implications of his life and his death. If it's true and people don't know it, I've got to go and tell them. And whether it's Istanbul or whether it's Surbiton, the commission is the same on every single believer. Do these truths motivate you to obedient, courageous, missional living? Because there is a wonder to these truths and there is an urgency to these truths. John says we're in the last hour. He didn't know. Even Jesus doesn't actually know when he will return. He says the Father knows. It could be tomorrow, it could be gazillions of years, I don't know. But the reality is our news is urgent. And one of the things that means I will always put a missional emphasis, I trust lovingly before you. The reason why we, I can say we exist, at least in part, to make this truth known is because if Jesus returns tomorrow, that is serious, serious news for the majority of our borough who are perishing. And because we love Christ, love the gospel, and I trust are growing in love for them, we must be a family who say we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for those that don't yet know. And it'd be wonderful to have John and Sophie back amongst us in our midst to provoke us with that same courageous, missional lifestyle. Do these truths promote a uh, humble living in you? You see, one of the things that people push back on about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ is that surely people who have an exclusive claim to truth, doesn't that lead to kind of judgmentalism, oppressive living? People who, think, people who are convinced they know the truth can live with some degree of judgmentalism and oppression. That's the objection, and sadly it's borne out to some degree in reality. Even, even from a Christian, people have lived out this exclusive claim for Christ and lived it out without compassion and grace. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. Just because, I don't know, I, if you support Manchester United, sometimes people in Manchester United sh- who support Manchester United wear the shirt, go abroad, and do things you'd rather they wouldn't do. doesn't mean your clubs stand for that. It just means that people have worn the shirt and gone and done something with it that isn't part of what the club stands for. If you've really understood these truths... They've gone from head to heart. If you think the truth that you believe is that God didn't leave me in my sin. He wasn't only the Lord of eternity. He agreed to come and dwell in humanity. If you actually believe the truth of that song that he knelt in humility to wash our feet, there is, there's no room for anything but, hum, uh, but humility. How's this done? Look at Jesus again. How did John describe Jesus in John chapter one, the gospel? Jesus Christ who came in grace and truth. Just amazing, Jesus. The only person with this perfect blend of truth and grace. Truth, he could say the most bold, radical, uncompromising, quotes exclusive things, and it was wrapped up and intertwined and undergirded by this grace and beauty and compassion and expression. That's, That's the kind of people we should be aspiring to be. But we don't just aspire to be it, we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to be it. Grace and truth. Some of you are truth people. We need to know the truth. We need to push the truth. We need to stick to the truth. Some of you are grace people. We need to be accepting. 
We need to be loving. We need to be compassionate. We need to be non-judgmental. Come to Jesus Christ. The perfect blend of uncompromising truth and incredible compassion and softness of spirit. If you're not yet a Christian, are you, are you kind of willing to explore these truths? I guess by definition you are if you're here this morning. Because these are the bottom line truths. Was Jesus who he said he was? Did he live perfectly, die on our behalf, genuinely rise from death to life, and ascend to heaven one day to return to judge the living and the dead? We want to make this family a community where you can ask those questions, challenge those truths, and come with us on that journey. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you think, I, I don't know everything, but I've, I've done the cognitive evidence bit. I feel like there's sufficient evidence to stand up, to help to, for the Christian claims to stand up. And you've also done the, if you like, the, the feeling bit. You say, I, I think I've experienced something of the love of God for me. And that is it. If you've investigated the claims of Christ, his resurrection in particular, and you're beginning to experience perhaps your life changing a bit, your heart softening, something of the love of God that just begins to move you, then just do what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That's it. And we would love to help you with that this morning. Come and chat to me, chat to Patrick, chat to the person you came to. That is what it means, not just to know the truth, but to experience the security of it. To step into the family of God and know a hope and an identity right now that no circumstance can buffet away from you and a future beyond the grave that inspires hope. That's for you this morning to have. Truth is something that can be known, is uniquely contained in Jesus Christ, and when actively applied, leads to secure life. Three, do you test for truth? I'm going to be really quick with this one, because I want to give us time to land. So bear with me. I'm going to go at 104 miles an hour. Ready? Go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I'm also going to read verse 3 to you. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay, what's the Antichrist? It is not like Hollywood, crazy horror films. It's not weird people in their basement making YouTube channels. The Antichrist is very simply anti Anti in Greek simply means instead of, instead of Christ. Jesus in Greek referred to pseudo-Christos, false Christ. So the spirit of the Antichrist is very simply anything which is trying to perpetuate a false version of who Jesus is. That might be an individual who comes towards the end of the, the hour in which we're in, but certainly the spirit of the Antichrist is about trying to subvert the idea of who Jesus really is. Now, my hunch is, knowing a good number of you, not any of you, most of you, my hunch is that not many of you are about to succumb to a Jehovah's Witness knocking on the door with a false version of who Jesus is or Mormons or Christian scientists and so on. I don't think. If you are, I would love to chat and help. But, or and, the need to test and to discern is just as important and prevalent. That's like loads of us will listen to sermons on YouTube, and listen to songs and read books by Christian authors and I do all of those things and they're really important. My question for this morning, well, John's, God's question in this passage is, do you test? Do you test the spirit behind what you listen to and read? Are you discerning? 
Not in some kind of cynical, fault-spotting fault fault way. I'm not trying to sort of say, oh, that's, that's, that's the Antichrist. I'm not trying to go all crazy. But John says, are you a mature Christian who tests the spirit behind what you listen to? Because there are lots of things that sound Christian, but actually the real Jesus is not being preached and perpetuated. Sometimes very obviously, and that's easier to spot, sometimes quite subtly. So do you just consume and swallow all that you listen to and read, or do you test it and discern it? And ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth. And ask other Christians, wise Christians, is this, is, is this of Jesus Christ? Am I hearing the whole gospel here? Is there anything about things like sin and judgment and hell? If I am, is it coming with grace and compassion? Is the answer always Jesus? The power of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father? Or is the answer kind of my good work, my efforts, my skill. Just ask some good questions because there's so much out there, which is a huge privilege and a huge joy and also a huge challenge. And I'm not, as leaders in your church, we're not saying we're going to look at what you watch and say, don't read this and don't, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying be mature and test and discern because there's some great stuff out there and there's some really unhelpful stuff out there. And some of it will have the spirit of the Antichrist behind it because the enemy is at work in the world and in the church. We said three weeks ago, his best tactic is lying. And what will his favorite lie be about? It'll be about Jesus. And his second favorite lie will be about who you are in light of who Jesus is. So you've got to test. You've got to discern. That's where we're going to land. Last point. Do you abide in the truth? Do you abide in the truth? Let me read one more passage to you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Do you think John wants to tell us something? (laughs) Abide, 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 abide. Commentators say that the, the Greek word that we translate abide could also be translated taking up a permanent residence, has that sense about it, or making a settled home. In other words, do the truths of the gospel, do they find a settled home in your heart? Do they take up permanent residence? Or is your heart kind of like a, an Airbnb option that occasionally the truth of Christ might find a, a spot to take up home and then they're gone again. There's a both and in the Christian faith that when the spirit of God comes upon someone to help them to respond in faith and salvation comes, Jesus says, that child is mine and nothing is going to let them go. And at the same time he says, because that salvation reality is true and authentic, it will be borne out with fruit, with evidence. One of them being that there will be a desire and a willingness and a, and a regularity of abiding, of, of dwelling, of walking in the light, as John's been saying early on in the, in the passage. To the truths of who Jesus is, of the word of God, do they abide? Do they find your heart and soul to be a settled home? I wonder what God wants to do this morning with that to help us 
to, if you like, freshly welcome the regularity, the consistency, the dwelling of God each day in our hearts. We're in a 40 to 40 season of prayer. What a great time to be every day inviting the truth of God to come and dwell in our hearts afresh. Holding God to his promises. Praying back to him the things that he said. I've been listening recently to someone who really helped me to pray because he was saying he started to pray, not uh, God will you do, but dad you said. (laughs) Saying that his kids often come to him and say, dad you said. He's like, oh no, I did. (laughs) But of course God the Father, everything he said, he stands by. He doesn't regret any of it. It's true. And so when you hold him to what he said and what is true, he willingly responds. So don't, in this, this season of 40 days, don't pray, God, would you mind if, it would be great if. Pray, get the truths, make them a settled home in your heart, and pray them back to the Father. Dad, you said you would build your church. Dad, you said that the gates of hell would not prevail. Dad, you said that if I have a mustard seed's worth of faith, Luke 17, I can speak to a mulberry tree, tell it to be uprooted, and it will go. In other words, things that are are, are deep where they shouldn't be can move in faith. Dad, you said, I am a child of yours over whom you speak love and affection every day. Give me the Holy Spirit to make that truth live today. If you've got 43 people praying, Dad, you said prayers for 40 days, Imagine how many elderly people begin to hear even more of the gospel. How many children at Kingston Community School begin to hear something fresh again of the gospel. How much salvation we begin to see in our own midst. How many lukewarm Christians suddenly begin to find the truth living in their hearts. How many leaders suddenly emerge in Uskodar Life Church in Istanbul to take the church into a great new season. Dad, you said you told John, Sophie and family to go there for five years to plant a church. They've done that because you told them to. So now you've got to come through and cause this church to flourish. Father, you said. Do you pray like that? You can. If you're a Christian because you're a child of the Father. Yeah. You're not a an adherent to a religious creed who needs to say all the right words to try and persuade God to act. You're a child whose the father's door is wide open. But you need to know the truth to pray the truth back to him. Dad, you said to the elders of King's Church many years ago, we should raise money to buy a building so that we could bless this borough. Dad, you said, pray it. Over the next 40 days, what do we do with this money that we have? What door should we be pushing? Because dad, you said, raise the money. I don't think God said, bury it under the floorboards forever and ever. I don't think he said, invest it in accounts, which we have done carefully forever and ever. He said, raise it, spend it, invest it, see the kingdom expand, see the church grow, see the community change, create a building with doors wide open that every person can find a seat at the table to, as Rachel said, to have broken hearts bound up, for prisoners to be set free, for the poor to be ministered to, for the sick to be healed. Dad, you said. Finally, I'm just going to lead us in a uh, a moment of, of response. And I wonder whether we could just take some time to do that, if Jamie and Aneka could just help me. Um, I just was, was praying this week, and then a, a conversation with someone in this church really kind of landed it to me afresh. It just felt so timely and prophetic. Uh, and it's this, about just the, the, and I think it came a little bit in what Rachel brought earlier on, about taking the promises of, of God, the dad you said stuff, and seeing freedom as a result. And I felt that when Rachel brought that, it was like a, 
It was there, and then there was a moment, wasn't there? I think the moment is now, uh, to begin to actually step into freedom. And Zoe, I think, brought something of that as well. The reality is, the devil is at work. He hates the church. He hates Christians. His best tactic is lying. And his favorite lies about Jesus and about Christians as a result of who Jesus is. So my bet is, if you're anything like me, some of us are vulnerable to believing lies. That's not a condemning thing. That's just a being honest with you thing. I do. And the lies might be about who Jesus is, or who God is, or what the word of God is. Or they might be about who I am in light of who God is and what the word of God says. And wouldn't it be great now if the Holy Spirit did what John says he does, anoints us with knowledge and truth and led us into truth because truth is where freedom is. And as I think Zoe says, the Bible says that for freedom, we were set free. I don't know what any of those things are. So what I'm going to do is just in a moment ask us to stand and we're just going to create a few moments to ask the Holy Spirit just to come afresh in this place to minister to each one of us, to help us to see to what extent and whether we are believing things that are not true, and then leading us just in confession of that, repentance of that, and then showing us what is true and the freedom that comes from that. And my desire is to try and tell you what those things might be, but I don't know, That's, which is great, because we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. There's freedom right here for some of you. Ways of thinking. So, come on, stand, would you? And if this is all new to you, if you're new to church or new to this way of doing things, please just be comfortable amongst us. All we're going to do is just close our eyes so we feel it's private between us and God. Equally, the person next to you, you can ask them to lay hands on you if you want to. I'm just going to pray a little short prayer along the lines of what I just prayed. And then we'll see what God does. Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that many of us have experienced the wonder of coming to the Father through faith in you. Thank you. And thank you that your promise to give us the Holy Spirit who would lead us into the depth of that truth and the freedom that truth brings is for us today. And so Holy Spirit, I just want to ask you to do what I know you love to do and come and clothe us so gently. And would you show us if we're believing lies? And then would you lead us through confession and repentance into truth and the freedom that knowing and believing the truth brings? We just welcome you in these moments.